Uh, in ancient Greece, Socrates was widely praised for his wisdom. And one day, the great philosopher came upon an acquaintance who ran up to him excitedly and said, Socrates, do you know what I just heard about one of your students? Wait a moment, Socrates replied. Before you tell me, I'd like you to pass a little test. It's called the test of three. Test of three? That's correct, Socrates continued. Before you talk to me about my student, let's take a moment to test what you're going to say. The first test is truth. Have you made absolutely sure that what you are about to tell me is true? No, the man replied. Actually, I just heard about it. All right, said Socrates. So you don't really know if it's true or not. Now let's try the second test, the test of goodness. Is what you're about to tell me about my student something good? Well, no. On the contrary. So, Socrates continued, you want to tell me something bad about him, even though you're not certain it's true. The man shrugged a little embarrassed. Socrates continued, you may still pass, this, pass though, because there is a third test, the filter of usefulness. Is what you want to tell me about my student going to be useful to me? No, not really. Well, concluded Socrates, if you want to tell me, if what you want to tell me is neither true nor good nor even useful, why tell it to me at all? And the man was defeated, he was ashamed, and he said no more. And this is the reason Socrates was a great philosopher and held in such high esteem. And it also probably explains why Socrates never found out that Plato was having an affair with his wife. Yeah. Anyway, I read a story this week of a little boy who lived in the, in the country. They had to use an outhouse for a facility, and the little boy absolutely hated the outhouse because it was always hot in the summer, cold in the winter, and it stunk all the time. So the little boy decided that because the outhouse was on the bank of a creek, which, by the way, I don't know if that's ever a good idea. Anyway, the outhouse was on the bank of a creek, and he would push that outhouse into the water. That's what he decided to do. And after a spring rain, when the creek was fully swollen, the boy knew it was time to push the outhouse into the creek. He got a big stick, and he pushed, and the outhouse toppled into the creek, and just floated away. Later that night, his dad told him that they were going to make a trip out to the woodshed. The little boy knew that meant a spanking. Then he asked his father why, and the father said, because someone pushed the outhouse into the creek today, and I think it was you. Wasn't it, son? And the boy answered, yes, it was, dad. Then the little boy thought and said, Today, Dad, I, I read in school that when George Washington cut down the cherry tree, he didn't get into trouble because he told the truth. And the father responded, well, yes, son. But George Washington's father wasn't inside that cherry tree, was he? Now, most of us have never toppled an outhouse, but all of us can identify with a little boy in probably three ways. 
First, we, we, we have something inside us that wants to do wrong. And second, our lack of goodness affects others. And third, there are always consequences to our choices. Kind of like the story we're about to hear in today's scripture. And those two stories combined together kind of encapsulate today's scripture uh, that we're going to be looking at today. There's something inside David that wants to do wrong. His lack of goodness affects others. And there are consequences to his choices. And he has an affair with someone's wife. And today's message comes from a time in David's life that isn't as memorable for its famous moments as it is for its infamous moments. David's life was almost becoming one whose purpose was to serve as a warning to others. And for us to avoid that kind of purpose in life, we need to guard ourselves from following David's downward spiral of sin by observing the subtle workings of temptation and how one sin can lead to another. It reminds me of the phrase or the phrases that says, sow a thought, reap an action, sow an action, reap a habit, sow a habit, reap a character, sow a character, reap a destiny. We will reap what we choose to sow. And as I've shared before, the phrase, our decisions definitely determine our destiny. And since our decisions determine our destiny, let's determine a better destiny by making better decisions. And the only way we can effectively make better decisions is by involving God in those decisions. So let's turn in our Bible, if you haven't yet, to 2 Samuel chapter 11, where we're going to see a very tragic moment in the life of a man after God's own heart. Now, I've invited another guest to read our scripture with us today, and some of you will recognize him and remember his years of growing up in Happy Valley Evangelical Church. Hi, Jeremy Kokendorfer here, joining you from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, I'd like to read the scripture for you today. If you have your Bibles, you can join me in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11. Again, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. 
When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In closing, we just want to send a greeting from our family, the Kokendorfers, to our Happy Valley family. We love you guys. We miss you. We pray that you're all well. God bless. Well, thank you, Jeremy Kokendorfer, for sharing that passage with us, reading it for us today. Jeremy is one of uh, Dave and Carol Kokendorfer's two sons. Nathan pastors our Tremont Evangelical Church, as you, some of you well know. And Jeremy is the pastor over at the Christ Life Evangelical Church in uh, Columbia Heights, Minnesota. It's just north of Minneapolis. It's part of our North Central Conference. And he is married to Barbara, and they have uh, three kids, Kaylee, Alex, and Olivia. So thank you for, for reading that, Jeremy. Uh, I trust that you'll have a, a great day today and a great ministry as well uh, through this day. Now, before we get into this chapter... Uh, let me review a little bit because where we left off was back in chapter 7 where, where David thought, I'd go ahead and build the temple for God. I'm going to do this for him. And God said, no, that's not for you to do. Plan it all you want, but I got someone else in mind. And it was going to be Solomon, David's son. So that, that was chapter 7. 
And uh, we've learned at times when God says no, um, we need to go along with that and realize that there's something better down the line. Our plans aren't as great as God's plans. And then you move from chapter 7 to chapter 8, and you have all of these battles that David wins. He goes against the Philistines, the Moabites, the Arameans, the, the Edomites, the Amalekites, a whole list of people, uh, people groups, that uh, God's enemies, that he goes ahead and he has victory with them, he and his army. And then in, and then chapter 9, we see how David then cares for Mephibosheth. Um, he's the son of Jonathan, and uh, David uh, makes plans and makes sure that, that Mephibosheth is uh, taken care of and protected, part of David's family, if you will. And then in uh, chapter 10, we see that David has victory over the Ammonites. And so all this is coming together. Things like things are moving forward. Uh, things are great. And then we come to chapter 11, where things seem to just kind of get stale, stagnant, and slow down. Now, uh, you notice that throughout this chapter, we don't see or hear about God until the very, very end. And David seems to be taking control right now. He can take, he's taking control of situations, taking control of his life, um, all these things. And so we're going to take a look at these things. Uh, um, and I've divided this portion of Scripture out in uh, about three sections here, three or four sections. Um, this first portion, verses 1 through 5, we're going to see David's demise. We're going to see David's demise. Uh, take a look at the steps of temptation leading to David's sin with Bathsheba that could have been avoided. Now, the first step we see here is in verse verse 1, where he's uh, he's at the home front rather than the battlefront. David was not where he should have been. It was the time when kings go out to battle, and he was at home. It, that one step taking you closer to where you shouldn't be. The second step of temptation was the lustful gaze rather than the innocent gaze, found in verse 2. And here, I just want to say, guys, this is a danger because we take things in through our eyes really quickly and it, it, hits, it hits us inside. It, uh, it's something we need to guard against. We need to guard our eyes. Make sure you do that, guys, because it's very important. Uh, Martin Luther said, although we can't keep the birds from flying over our heads, we can keep them from building a nest in our hair. <laughs> you know, the innocent gaze, uh, innocent glance, excuse me, is, is that's fine. It happens. Someone comes in front of you. Uh, for the guy, is a beautiful woman. And, and you, oh, innocent glance. And then you move on. The problem is, is when you go, oh, beautiful woman, innocent glance. And then you walk, watch them walk by and you still glance and stare and gaze. That's when trouble starts to happen. Uh, that's when it's it's really close, slippery slope down to the lustful gaze, and then you're on your way. You may not be able to keep the innocent glance from occurring, but you don't have to gaze upon the scene. If you are not careful, the glance can become a gaze, and the gaze can transform into what's called leering. And leering is like that seductive, lustful glance. Uh, not a good thing. Not a good thing. So this is where we find... David right now. And then in verse 3, the next step of, of temptation, it, it was the direct command rather than the inquisitive question. He could have asked just an inquisitive question and let it go. 
but as a direct command that came. Notice how he, uh, uh, how uh, she is described, Bathsheba, by by the one who was asked the question, "Who is this person?" And he says, "The daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite." What an incredible, significant statement! Most often, when a person is described in Scripture, their genealogy is given without relation to their mate. You hear about father, grandfather, great-grandfather, all along down the line. You never hear of who that person's married to. But this servant mentions Bathsheba as Uriah's wife. In other words, the lady's married. Stay away. Eliam could possibly be um, the son of uh, Ahithophel, who was David's advisor. And Uriah was one of David's 30 mighty men. Um, and so you have this plan against David. You got the, the, the advisor, the granddaughter to his advisor that he's asking about, the wife of one of his elite soldiers, Uriah. It should have stopped David in his tracks right there, but sadly it didn't. Which moves us to verse 4 and the fourth step of uh, this, this temptation that David fell into. This fourth step is the taking four rather than the leaving alone. He could have left it alone. Oh, okay, I, I, I see who Bathsheba is. Hands off. Got it. But he didn't. He took her. David could have left well enough alone. He could have heeded the servant's subtle hints about Bathsheba, but he didn't. It doesn't seem to register with David at all. He said no to all the things he should have said yes to, and yes to all the things he should have said no to. His desire for Bathsheba was most important on his mind and his heart. He moved quickly, ignoring any warning and all the consequences. Then we move to verse 5, which I call this, this verse, which is a section of its own, called the bombshell. The bombshell. In, in a, just a few choice words, I'm pregnant. Have you ever noticed that Satan never tips his hand in temptation? He shows you only the beauty, the ecstasy, the fun, and the excitement, and the, the stimulating adventure of stolen desires, all those things. But he never tells the heavy drinker, tomorrow, tomorrow morning, there'll be a hangover, and ultimately you'll ruin your family. He never tells the drug user early on, this is the beginning of a long, sorrowful, dead-end road. He never tells the thief, you're going to get caught, friend. You do this, and you'll wind up behind bars. And he certainly doesn't warn the adulterer, you know, pregnancy is a real possibility, or you could get a life-threatening disease. You gotta be kidding if he's gonna be doing stuff like that. You gotta be kidding yourself if the destroyer of your soul will warn you. <laughs> when the sin is done and all the penalties of that sin come due, the devil is nowhere to be found. He smiles uh, as you fall, but he leaves you with no encouragement when the, when the consequences kick in. And when David got the news, he had a decision to make. He could take one of uh, two courses. He could go before God, declare himself completely contaminated, sinful, guilty, and then declare to his counselors and the nation, I have sinned. Obviously, that was exactly what he should have done. Or he could go the route of deception and hypocrisy. And sadly, that's what David does, which leads him 
further into sin. And this decision to lie and deceive set in motion an endless series of heartaches within his immediate family in the years to come. If you read on in the scriptures, and we're going to also, too, find this out as well, but you read on, and it's just a train wreck uh, with his family. And a number of people are drawn into the wake of David's sin. David isn't the only one affected here. And, and you're going to see this on down the line as well. But obviously Bathsheba and Uriah are affected. Joab's uh, integrity is also compromised. And several other soldiers are killed unnecessarily when they are sent with Uriah on a suicide mission. And the pagan nations surrounding Israel feel the impact of David's sin. In uh, chapter 12, verse 14 of 2 Samuel, it says, By doing this, by sinning, uh, taking Bathsheba, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. Finally, as we discover in the next chapter, um, the innocent child, uh, the child of David and Bathsheba, is affected by this tragic union as well. You know, our sin doesn't just affect ourselves. It affects those around us. What we do affects other people. And that's how Satan gets more bang for his buck. All he had to do was get David a little complacent, make him stay at home instead of be on the battlefront, and then all the dominoes fell right into place. They just fell forward, one after another. Ravi Zacharias, um, He's a uh, biblical scholar, author. He said, Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Let me repeat that because I think it's something for us to keep in mind. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. When we're in the middle of panic, you know, we, we don't make wise decisions. And that's where David is. He has had his night of passion, and suddenly the, the news comes back to haunt him. This woman, this wife of another man, this granddaughter of, of, of an advisor is going to have David's baby. And he thinks, what do I do? <laughs> what do I do now? And rather than f falling on his face before God, rather than openly admitting his adultery, he chose the route of deception and hypocrisy. Which brings us to the next section of this portion of Scripture, the king's cover-up, verses 6 through 25, the king's cover-up. So David quickly collected his thoughts, and he formulated his plan. Bathsheba's pregnant. What do I need to do now to keep this quiet? And we might call David's plan uh, the Get Uriah plan. This Operation Save Face plan. And this plan had three phases. Phase one was found in verses 6 through 11. Get Uriah home. Get Uriah home. If David could just get Uriah home, hopefully Uriah would sleep with Bathsheba and everything would, everyone would think that Bathsheba's baby was Uriah's. Pretty simple, right? But Uriah comes home, and what does he do? Or maybe more accurately, what does he not do? He does not go home. And to David's frustration, Uriah explains that it just wouldn't be right for him to sleep at home while his fellow soldiers were away from their families and fighting. This should have stopped David right in his tracks right there, going, oh, you're a better person than me. 
I'm I'm not gonna, I'm not going to go through with this. But he does. He continues on with his plan. Phase one didn't work, so phase phase two of Operation Save Face comes into play, and it's get Uriah drunk. And this is found in verses 12 through 13. If Uriah was drunk, maybe he would lower his inhibitions and go home to sleep with his wife. But the next morning, where does David find Uriah? He's sleeping at the palace. There was only one thing for David to do now. David was going to have to swallow his pride and tell Uriah the truth. Right? That's what he was... No. Wrong. Wrong. You can almost picture David rationalizing his next move by thinking, Well, Uriah, I tried to avoid this. I tried to help you. But you've given me no other choice. Yeah, you, you, I, you just got to go. You got to go. So phase three of Operation Save Face is get Uriah killed. Get Uriah killed. Verse 14 through 25. And in those verses, David sends Uriah back to battle with his, his the message to Joab, um, his own death sentence, basically. And so he sends him back to battle with a message for Joab, the military commander of Israel's army. And the message was simple, simple and to the point. Put Uriah on the front lines and then retreat, leaving Uriah there to die. And this phase went exactly as David had hoped. David and Bathsheba received the news that Uriah was killed in battle. In fact, this part of the plan almost went better than David could have hoped. Not only was he spared the embarrassment of people discovering his affair with Bathsheba, but he also looked really good in the eyes of the people who heard what he did next. He took the pregnant widow, Bathsheba, into his home and married her. Ah, that King David. What a guy, right? So, how did this happen to the man that the Bible describes as a man after the Lord's own heart? Remember, decisions determine destiny. And as we read through this account, there are three things that we should see here. Three things. One is sinful pride. Sinful pride. Sinful pride convinced the king that he knew better than the king of kings and lord of lords. It began with David taking time, that, some time off from being the king and led to adultery and finally murder. Sinful pride convinced David that he knew better than God, that he could ignore what God called him to do and be. The next is closely connected to this. The next one uh, is not taking sin seriously. You can almost hear David convincing himself, it's just one look, it's just one night, it's just one life. But the thing is, sin is never just one. And if you ever have any doubts about sin's severity, just take a look at Jesus at the cross and hear what David's sin uh, Bathsheba's sin, your sin, my sin, did to Jesus. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For each sin and for every sin, Jesus suffered an eternity of hell, a complete absence of hope and, and blessing. And when sin is not taken seriously, it leads to this final thing, covering up sin instead of confessing sin. When sin is not taken seriously, it leads people to do what David did. Try to ignore it. 
try to justify it, try to explain it away. Instead of confessing his sin to the Lord and receiving the Lord's forgiveness, David tried to cover up his sin. And by trying to cover it up, he refused to repent of his sin. And sadly, pushed away God's forgiveness, placing his eternal life in jeopardy. Now, I hope that, that none of us ever finds ourselves in that situation. But like most things in our life, without preparation and, and, and prevention, we usually find ourselves in the very situations we never thought we'd ever be in. So how do we pre prevent this same thing from happening to us? What can we do? Well, it begins by knowing what God's will is for you and humbly following it. Know and humbly follow God's will for you. A Lord, the Lord called David to be a king. But when David decided that he knew better how to be a king, he began to drive away from the Lord. And what was the Lord called what, what, what did the Lord call you to do? What has he called you in your life? Maybe he's called you to be the Christian husband or, or the Christian wife or the, the parent or the friend or the student or the child. Maybe the employee or the employer. Maybe even a retiree. A, a, a Christian one. One that shows that you follow God, that you follow Jesus. Learn from God's word how God wants you to carry out those various callings that God has given to you for your blessing and the blessing of others. Fight that sinful pride that daily tries to convince us that we don't need God's guidance, that we, we know better than him how to be and, and what he has called us to be. Be careful with the sinful pride. Watch out. Know and humbly follow God's will for you. And then next, when we realize that we have failed to follow God's will, Take sin seriously. Take sin seriously. Can you imagine uh, going to the doctor who says to you, well, the biopsy came back and it's just a little cancer. If uh, we don't treat it right away, though, it will eventually kill you. Um, I wouldn't worry about it, though. Come back next year. I think that you'd probably be looking for a new doctor. You'd want to address that cancer as soon as possible so that it doesn't result in something worse, right? My dad would have been 77 years old back on May 1st, but he succumbed to cancer two years ago. He decided to ignore the treatment for his bladder cancer that was diagnosed a few years back. And he thought he knew what was best, put it on hold. Um, he, he would do something else. Well, that led to his death. On the other side of things, my uncle, George, my dad's brother, he had some, some, uh, the same diagnosis, but decided to start treatments and follow the doctor's orders. And he is still with us today. And I believe his cancer is, is uh, in remission or eradicated at this point. It's very interesting. Yeah, the cancer needed to be addressed as soon as possible. If it didn't, it led to death. If, it, if, it, if cancer was taken care of and addressed uh, as the doctor appointed, then there was life. 
You know, the Lord says the same thing about sin. Address it as soon as possible so that it doesn't result in something worse. In James chapter 1, we read in verses 14 through 15, But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You know, James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 would be an incredible summary of this chapter 11 in 2 Samuel. James reinforces what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Take sin seriously no matter what stage you find it at. Repent of it and cut it out so that it doesn't advance to the spiritual death of, of hell that is described by James. And yes, there is always the temptation to belittle sin, to shrug it off, and to justify it. But sin is not something to be ignored. It is something to be confessed. It is something to be repented of. That we may hear what David would eventually hear when he repented of his sin. Sadly, though, King David lived in this state of denial and unrepented heart for at least nine months until Bathsheba gave birth to their son. Which brings us to the last couple verses of this chapter, the response. Uh, we have Bathsheba, who mourned after the loss of her, her husband, Uriah. And then in, in goodwill and everything, David brought Bathsheba into his home, this, this poor widow, and married her. And then the baby was born. Which then brings us to the last portion of verse 27, which I think is so, it just echoes loudly across this chapter. It says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the literal, tra literal translation of the Hebrew word for displeased is, was evil in the eyes. So this last portion of verse 27 would read, but the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. That gives it a little more kick. What David did, not just only displeased the Lord, it was evil in God's eyes. In that brief ending statement of the chapter, we see what Charles Swindoll describes as the raw open sewage of David's life. Uh, Swindoll goes on to say, he says, The sweet singer of Israel was now living a lie, faking his existence in a minor key. This passionate, handsome king, this exemplary leader, now lives in the shadows of his own palace. He no longer goes out to battle. He shrivels into something he was never designed to be because he deliberately compromised with wrong, then deceitfully covered it over with murder. Wow. That's what temptation leads you to. And that's what sin does. Decisions definitely determine destiny. There was a Christian ministry magazine that took a survey of their readers who ranked areas of greatest spiritual challenge to them. And the top nine of, uh, that, that came about on this was uh, at the very top of the list, materialism, followed by pride, self-centeredness, laziness, anger and bitterness tied with sexual lust, envy, gluttony, and lying. And the thing about all this is that 
said that, it, that the temptations were more powerful when they had neglected their time with God. And 57% said that temptations were more powerful when they were physically tired. So neglect your time with God and be tired. You're setting yourself up for a perfect storm. And then 84% said resisting temptation was accomplished by prayer. 76% said that it was accomplished by avoiding compromising situations. Get out of there. 66% said that resisting temptation was accomplished by Bible study. And 52% said it was accomplished by being accountable to someone. So we should watch out when we find ourselves in these situations, red flag moments, if you will, when we neglect our time with God and we're physically tired. We're broken down physically, and we have no uh, spiritual anchor right now. We're going to wind up uh, falling, definitely falling. And we remember that we can resist temptation by prayer, avoiding compromising situations. You know, run just like Joseph did. Run. We can we get involved in Bible study, and of course accountability. All the thing, all those things coming together to form a a resistance to those temptations that will come our way. It won't keep those temptations from coming. But when they do come, you have a plan. And in order to help us more in our accountability, I'd like you to consider these questions as well, too. Maybe it will point you in the right direction. But am I being desensitized by the present evil in the world? Ask yourself these questions. Do these do, do things that once shocked me now pass me by with little notice? Have my sexual ethics slackened a bit? Where, uh, where does my mind wander when I have no duties to perform? I think about David wandering up there on, on his palace roof there. What am I reading? Are there books or magazines or files in, in my library or on my computer or on my devices that I want no one else to see? What am I renting at the local red box or streaming on my smart TV? How many hours do I spend watching TV or have screen time? How many adulteries did I watch last week? How many murders? How many did I watch with my children? How many chapters of the Bible did I read last week? All of these questions come in to bring accountability of what are you doing with your life? These are just a few questions that could help you in your accountability of resisting temptation. And we need to do that. Resist. Because remember, decisions will determine our destiny. Now imagine that among those who are listening today, there are some who struggle when they are alone with their thoughts. You made choices in the past that concern you today, right? You're haunted by what you did in the past. Let me encourage you to make things right with the one who loves you and who redeems you. You know, we are promised in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you imagine that you are able to hide your sin from God, you're only deceiving yourself. He knows you. He knows your sin. And yet, he stands ready to forgive you. 
This is the wonderful thing about the grace of our God. Even though he knows us, he accepts us as we are, just as I am. That's how we need to come before God. We don't need to clean up our life and then seek his forgiveness. His forgiveness is extended to the one who confesses and abandons his sin. So, yes, go to the person you wronged. That's important. Seek their forgiveness. But first, before you do that, go to Jesus and receive his cleansing. Then, filled with God's grace and his forgiveness, your confession to the one you wronged will bring honor and glory to Jesus who loves you dearly. And when David attempted to hide his sin, he was miserable. If you're attempting to hide your sin, you probably feel just as miserable too. Nurtured sin guarantees that we have no joy. When David confessed his sin, he found mercy and relief. In Psalm 51, David prayed about the events that we read here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And it's a prayer that can be your own prayer too. I'm going to read that Psalm 51, the first 12 verses. And as I read it, let that psalm be your prayer. I'm going to use it as our closing prayer today. But let it be your prayer. If you need that cleansing from God, you need to pray that scripture in your heart. Please do so as I read Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from your iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and, sh and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Amen. Amen. May God give you victory in your life today. And if you prayed that Psalm 51 prayer, I'd love to be able to hear about it. You can send me a direct message on Instagram or an instant message on Facebook because I love to, to celebrate with you and let you know that I'll be praying for you.